Hello, this is David L. Bernstein. Um, I usually don't cite my middle initial L, uh, but in this case, I'm going to need to because this podcast is with three David Bernstein. Uh, David E. Bernstein, who is a professor of law at George Mason University, a prolific author. You might hear more about some of the books he's written, including those on free speech. Uh, we also have uh, David S. Bernstein, who is a book publisher with uh, Bombardier Books and also executive editor of Wicked Sun Press, which I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit about as well. Um, and as you know, I'm David L. Bernstein, founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. Um, this may appear to be the least diverse mantle in human history, but actually we are quite diverse. Um, David S. is a uh, half black, which you could talk about maybe uh, at some point. David E. Bernstein is married to an Iraqi Jewish woman and his kids are half Iraqi like me. So we are uh, we are much more representative of Jewish diversity than might appear on our cover. Um, but I'm really happy to have um, the two of you here. Um, and um, I thought I'd start out with a question about um, this illiberal ideology that we're all talking about. We, I call it critical social justice ideology. Um, Wesley Yang calls it the, um, calls it the uh, successor ideology. Um, you know, I think they're all mean the same thing. Uh, but, you know, it's it, the impact it has on, on Jews in particular and on anti-Semitism. Maybe I'll start with you, David E. What, what, what's your take on how this might fuel anti-Semitism? Well, one problem is that uh, there's a very, while people think they're being, who are into this, think they're being very much into diversity and this and that, it's a very narrow perspective which tries to understand all problems basically through the lens of black, white, white relationships in the United States over the last several hundred years. And Jews don't fit into that paradigm very well. Uh, Anti-Semitism doesn't fit, is a form of racism that doesn't fit into the black, white racism paradigm. Uh, the classic anti-black racism in the United States is that blacks are inferior, which is why it's okay first to enslave them, then to segregate them and whatnot. Anti-Semitism tends to be a conspiracy about Jewish power. So there's nothing uh, inherently um, contradictory about understanding that Jews are doing uh, very well economically society, but also having a lot of anti-Semitism. But if you assume that uh, racism in all its forms has to be about the dominant group uh, believing the lower group is inferior and keeping them at a lower socioeconomic standard, then you can't understand how anti-Semitism could coexist with Jewish success, nor could you really explain why Jews are relatively economically successful in the United States uh, without adding to the conspiracy theory that Jews must somehow be uber whites because the whites will always be on top of the pyramid. Right. Daphne Kaufman at the Ryud Institute has been writing about this and calls it erasive anti-Semitism in that it it both um, sort of erases Jews from this um, hierarchy of, of privilege and makes them out to be part of the oppressor class, but also erases anti-Semitism itself in that it 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 it. Um, it treats it as if it's a non-factor um, and therefore not really um, oppressive of Jews. Uh, David S., what's your take? Um, well, I agree with everything that David E. said, but uh, let me add an additional dimension here. Um, the, all of this stuff under whatever name that you want to give it 
is a form of extreme collectivism. Um, and it, you know, it's based around immutable characteristics like uh, race and ethnic origin um, and makes them very determinative of, of you know, individual fate, um, if you will. Um, and historically speaking, any form of extreme collectivism um, has led to extreme anti-Semitism um, because for many of the reasons that, that David E. already brought up, it's just Jews don't fit into an extreme collectivist paradigm um, for a couple of reasons. One, because you know Judaism is, is a source of the, the notion of individual rights in the first place, but also in, in a somewhat contradictory way, um, Jews are exceptionalist um, and don't uh, assimilate well, if you will, into extreme collectivist movements. The Jews will always be the recalcitrants that require re-education in the camps. Um, and this has been the case since the Roman Empire. Um, it's not new. Um, so as Jews, even though, you know, we, we feel like, you know, the, the social justice, uh, liberal Jews feel like collectivism is part of the Jewish experience. Um, actually what they're signing on to is an ideology that's always been hostile to Judaism and Jews. Mm. So this obviously plays out as we saw recently in May with uh, the war in Gaza and how people perceive Israel. They're applying this same ideological paradigm to to Israel and the Palestinians. How how do you see that as a factor, if at all? Am I am I wrong about that? Oh wow! I mean, you know, when you start talking about the Palestinian issue, which is you know hardly my area of expertise. There's just so many odd dynamics at play. Um, there's Jews that, that hate Israel. There's other people that hate Israel for various reasons. There's um, Muslim anti-Semitism. It's such a complicated dynamic. Any conversation about Palestine, Palestinians is almost never about Palestinians. It's, it's simply a proxy for something else. Somebody working, somebody working out their issues on something else, using the Palestinians as a, as a pawn for that. I, I do think I actually wrote something about this for the Times of Israel recently. I've been thinking about this for a while and finally wrote it up. Why, why Israel gets so much attention? I, I'm not even talking about whether you like Israel or don't like Israel. Why is, why uh, compared to every other conflict in the world does any conflict involving Israel get so much attention? And I think that uh, people are, you know, in general, are fascinated by the idea of Jewish power and sovereignty after 2,000 years. And some of the people who are fascinated by it are pro-Israel, uh, whether uh, Christian evangelicals who think that God is blessing the Jewish people or Jews themselves who are proud to finally have an independent state. But uh, there are these other, all the, a lot of the other groups that are fascinated are are anywhere from extremely uncomfortable to hostile to the idea of Jews having any collective power. There's uh, Islam, which has historically thought of itself as at the top of the Abrahamic pyramid, and Jews are supposed to be ruled by Muslims and not vice versa. There's traditional Christian anti-Semitism, that, that Jews rejected Jesus, and therefore they're doomed to wander the earth stateless and homeless because as punishment. There are liberal Christians who think that Jews, having suffered from the Holocaust, should become martyrs 
refers to uh, the their victimhood and uh, like and be basically the good Christians of the world, and they blame us for you know one of the most offensive. Uh, forms of anti-Israel, anti-Semitic sentiment is having Jews learn from the Holocaust, as if we're the ones who are supposed to learn a lesson, as right. opposed to the perpetrators. Uh, right. Then the Jews themselves, there are a lot of Jews uh, out there who their Jewish identity is historically based on the, all they really got besides bagels and locks is Jews are supposed to be the victims historically, and as the victims, we stick up for the underdog, whoever that might be, which is a, a really asinine kind of reductionist view of the world. The underdog's always right, uh, but uh, it does lead to this sort of idea, well, if Jews are the ones exercising power, they must be in the wrong, because that's contrary to our views of what Jews are supposed to be. And there are also the Marxists who historically have felt that Jews are sort of an illegitimate middleman ethnic group that exists only because of capitalism, and, and therefore... If Jews uh, are to exist as any kind of collective, their, their only justification is that they're going to be social justice activists. Uh, and if they're not going to be that, then they shouldn't exist at all. Right. So there's also obviously a very simple binary here, right? That if Jews are the oppressor in this paradigm, that's obviously going to extend to Israel and the Palestinians. Um, a, a writer, and I'm blanking on his name for the Daily Beast, in condemning uh, Mayim Bialik for the you know new host of Jeopardy, I'm not sure that's finalized yet, by the way. But it but he wrote about it, um, accused uh, her support of Israel as being a function of white supremacy, and I thought it was interesting that they took the typical um, critical social justice lexicon and applied it so seamlessly to the Israeli-Palestinian issue, as if Israel were a group of whites. Um, and we're exhibiting white supremacy against Palestinians who are the collective black person in this paradigm. It seems, uh, you know, but I, I think that's actually what's happening in the in the mind of the the sort of the woke. Well, look yeah. to a hammer, they say every problem looks like a nail, right? right. So uh, this is, uh, you know, if, if you have this extremely narrow worldview where everything has to fit into this paradigm, the only way of understanding a conflict between a westernized country if you want to call it that, a non-Westernized people is through this white supremacy paradigm. It doesn't have to make any sense. It's the only perspective you have. Right. Well, so, it, it, you know, it goes back. It, it's not new. Of course, it goes back to the whole Zionism equals racism thing, which, you know, was was a, a, a creation of the Soviet Union um, as anti-Israel, anti-Western propaganda. Um, and you know, it's lasted beyond the demise of the Soviet Union and been repackaged by the wokesters because it's it's effective, um, because it, it works on young, uh, impressionable, um, overeducated Western kids, um, Jews and non-Jews alike, um, and who are, who are increasingly turning anti-Israel based solely on this lie um, that, that, that was a creation of, of the KGB. Yeah, I really want to, I mean, I want, I've talked about this a little bit. I really want to emphasize David's point because I don't think it gets nearly enough attention that all the, just about every propaganda point that you will read any young woke leftist saying comes directly from anti-Semitic Soviet propaganda of the 60s and the 70s. They're not aware of the origin, at least the 99% of them aren't. Right. Uh, and they would probably deny it, but it's quite obvious. I know there are a, a, one or two scholars out there working on this, but so this is going to be a great book for your uh, for, for your Wicked, Wicked Son Press. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, absolutely. Um, so 
Ibrahim X. Kendi, a professor, I think, at Boston University uh, and the uh, now very famous um, author of um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, has talked about equity. And under this definition of equity, um, any disparity is prima facie evidence of discrimination and racism. So all disparity is automatically a function of white supremacy. And it seems to me that um, that if all of all disparity that works against a community is a function of racism, then all advantage or all privilege, if you will, that a community experience, all success that a community experience is also a function of white supremacy as well. And Jews are one of those groups that are vastly overrepresented in among the success classes, uh, Asian Americans as well. How do you think that that plays out for us in the long run if it continues to gain ground in the public discourse? You know, um, years ago, I mean, it has to be what, like, Almost 30 years ago, uh, uh, Daniel Farber and Suzanne Sherry uh, wrote uh, an essay and then a book. Well, it, was a cha- it turned into a chapter of a book on critical uh, legal uh, critical legal studies and critical race theory, where they uh, said that critical race theory is anti-Semitic implicitly uh, for exactly that reason. So this isn't a new uh, paradigm. They said, look, uh, exactly what you said. If all disadvantage is the product of oppression and all advantage is the product of privilege since Jews uh, are better off socioeconomically than the vast majority of groups in society must be a result somehow of Jewish privilege. And we know Jewish people have always have been discriminated against. So it can't, so there must be, so this must like really add to the conspiratorial, uh, you know, it's worse. It, it becomes uh, almost more anti-Semitic than even standard anti-Semitism because the only way to explain it in that paradigm is that Jews somehow, despite being discriminated again uh, by the establishment, yeah. have had so much privilege that they can still succeed. They have, you know, some, it has to be some sort of a conspiracy or plot to explain it. Yeah, and, and, and you know, Kendi and, and people like that have a lot to answer for. Um, not just now, but really for the last 30, 40 years, the, the, the black radical academics. Um, because you can see in surveys the, the, their handiwork, um, which is consistently the most um, anti-Semitic segment of American, uh, the American population are college-educated blacks, um, particularly people who went to more elite colleges where this sort of stuff is taught. Um, it, and it's, it's a deliberate, in my view, um, part of, of their ideology, which is to turn blacks and Jews against each other. Um, and it's right. extremely dangerous and, and borderline evil. Uh, Kendi's co-authored book, which is the one they're reading in middle school and high school, Stamped a Remix, uh, it did not escape my attention when I read it because it was assigned to my daughter's middle school and I had a fit about it, uh, that every, all, all the bad guys are a sort of, you know, mainstream, what we call mainstream African-American leaders over the years, Martin Luther King, Frederick Douglass, they're all racist to Kendi. Every single contemporary or reasonably contemporary black leader he praises, Stokely Carmyle, uh, Angela Davis, uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, every single one of them is anti-Semite. He doesn't ever mention <laughs> their views on Jews, but I, I, I just can't be a coincidence, right? That, uh, that, that they're all anti-Semites. Interesting. You know, speaking of Angela Davis, you know, she was a, 
uh, a student, an acolyte of Marcuse, the uh, um, German thinker who came up with the idea of repressive tolerance, which is that basically we can we can repress um, ideas of the dominant culture that make it hard for uh, for uh, their that narrative to sort of come to the fore. In other words, it was the decided anti-illiberalism uh, of its day that probably has done more to influence our current debate on, you know, critical race theory and the like. Uh, and and it was really her influence in the American Academy that probably has done more damage than anything else I can think of. Um, so I think along with the Soviets and their fingerprints on this, I think it's probably Marcuse and Angela Davis spreading some of these ideas. Well, it's very, very interesting that it, it seems like the one of the primary purposes of contemporary, you know, woke, radical black thinking is is this ongoing effort to um, rehabilitate Angela Davis. Um, uh, you, you can walk into Nordstrom right now by an Angela Davis sweatshirt. Um, it's, it's, it's really kind of bizarre. Um, they've turned her into some sort of pop culture icon. And I'm not sure what the actual purpose is. Um, why her of all people? Um, uh, it's, uh, but it, it just shows you just how weird and topsy-turvy the world is right now. Yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, was, I was when I was reading uh, "Stamped to Remix," she is the heroine of the last third or so of the book. I mean, a few interesting things about it. One of which is that uh, Kendi uh, and his co-author treat her as some sort of that she came up with. You know, this radical African American anti-racist theory. When, as you mentioned, David, she, David L. She was an acolyte of Herbert Marcuse, a German Jewish refugee, and she took. Her ideas, pretty, you know, she would acknowledge directly from him. He was a communist. She was a communist. Uh, so if anything, you know, she is the she is a conduit for white communist ideas, if you want to call them that. Uh, also, when you say, well, white Jewish, <laughs> right, white, right. Uh, and, and, and you know, you say that well, there's the Soviet Union, Angela Davis. Of course, Angela Davis was a pro-Soviet communist for much of her career, only stopping to be when the Soviet Union collapsed, and never, as far as I know, never regretting her her uh, doubt, her love affair with the Soviet Union. She was the Communist Party vice presidential candidate several elections. She met with Eric Honiger. She said Soviet Jews belong in jail, uh, and so forth and so on. So, but you know, I was thinking though, why Angela Davis? To my mind, Angela Davis's intellectual contributions are essentially zero. Right. Uh, that like if I was going to name someone African-American in the modern era who really did have an influence, I'd say Derek Bell, for example. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So you, we are all sort of heterodox, I think, in some ways, but I think I'm probably the, the furthest left among you. Um, David E., you're a libertarian, and I know um, you uh, had your qualms with uh, with Trump. I don't know about you, David S., uh, how, how, where, where you fell. I don't know how, to what degree uh, Trump affected your political outlook. Um, you can feel free to talk about it or not. Um, but mm -hmm. it seems to me one of the 
outgrowth of this critical social justice ideology is the possibility that the Democratic Party in America goes the direction of the Labor Party under Corbyn, and that many, many Jews who are still firmly Democrats are going to be sort of fundamentally alienated from American politics. And while that might not be explicitly or intentionally anti-Semitic, it is. it might be sort of anti-Semitic in effect by disenfranchising large percentages of American Jews who are not going to feel comfortable in either party. They're not going to feel comfortable in a Trump-dominated Republican Party, and they're not going to feel comfortable in a, um, in a you know, a woke Democratic Party that's become more uh, explicitly anti-Israel. What are your thoughts on that, on that view? Um, well, you know, there's a couple of things going on that, that are driving this phenomenon. I mean, you know, yeah, there's I, I do think that Trump, um, for better or worse, did attract a, a lot of Jews to to more conservative ideas. Um, you know, and and you know if what he did for Israel cannot be you know overstated. Um, on the other hand, what it's not just about Trump versus the woke, right? What you're you're seeing is that. Um, both political parties are moving in a populist direction. One's a left populism, one's a right populism. Um, but, you know, frankly, populism has not been good to the Jews over the years. Um, and so when you have a, a, a party that's, I mean, a, 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 a polity that's moving in a, in, uh, purely in populist directions, a lot of Jews are going to feel um, disenfranchised um, in that sort of thing. Because frankly, you know, Jews rely on the close relationship um, between Israel and the United States, um, American Jews in particular. Um, and there's not necessarily room in a populist country for strong international alliances like that. Yeah, that's certainly a factor, but probably not the only factor. If the if the party itself starts to sound like people that are fundamentally adversarial to them, um, whether it's you know an Ilan Omar on the left or a Trump-style Republican on the populist right, that's going to be um, that's not going to be a comfortable place for a lot of Jews. Some will, some will try to make peace with whatever party, many will, maybe the majority will make peace with their own uh, ideologues in their own party, but a lot, a lot are going to feel increasingly uncomfortable, it seems to me. David E., what do you think? I think, first of all, that um, I, I think Jews were fortunate that uh, the populism that was nascent in the Republican Party found its expression in Trump and not in someone who is actually personally hostile to Jews. I can, yeah. I can easily imagine a Pat Buchanan, for example, a, right. you know, a different time and place having been uh, the standard bearer, and that would have been uh, very bad at a whole uh, range of levels. Uh, I, think, I think one problem we're facing, and I suppose this is contrary to my general belief in free speech, I guess I've, I've, actually, be, I've actually come to... Um, have a little bit more respect for the establishment in a sense than I used to. Uh, the way, you know, as as gatekeepers, obviously, I think David S. at least and I would agree that the mainstream, the MSM as it's called, the mainstream media always leans somewhat to the left, but they at least uh, 
had an ideology of trying to be fair-minded, even if they didn't know how to do that because they didn't really understand the other side. And they did keep the extremist wackos uh, and the anti-Semites sort of outside the mainstream of discourse. Once that breaks down and it's all about how many clicks you get and whoever, and so and there are no gatekeepers, it just allows a lot of um, problematic uh, uh, ideas that were relegated to fringes uh, to uh, become more popular, uh, get more uh, get more airtime. And it's also the case, you know, in the old days, if you had a bunch of, you know, crazy anti-Semites, maybe they could find a holiday, you know, have uh, badly mimeographed flyers they would hand out and maybe get eight people to a holiday and conference room. Now they have the same platform on Twitter or Facebook or blogs as anybody else. So, I mean, I'm, the, the hope is that over time, you know, that these things tend to, uh, that things go to one extreme, like right now we're in a, uh, a, a moment of um, uh, flourishing of all sorts of alternative outlets and eventually we'll figure out how to differentiate between the, the fake news and the propaganda and the racism and anti-Semitism and come to a more mainstream, uh, if not necessarily more moderate uh, 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 equilibrium. But right now we're living through, uh, uh, you know, all the all the wackos who are on the sidelines for like good 30, 40, 50 years uh, have ha- are, in, are in their moment. And that's bad. They're getting undue influence in both parties because they're the people who, the, the wack- one thing about the wackos, they're true believers. Right. And the true believers are the ones who will spend their time tweeting and or marching and crying to their congressmen. And they get they get disproportionate influence that way. The rest of us have jobs and so forth. Yeah. I mean, look, this is a recurring thing through American history, in human history, really, but especially in American history, um, periods of, you know, you know, the unum sort of you know, falling apart. And you're right, David, it's, it's always a question of, you know, does things get pulled not back to the center because there's not really a center as well defined in America, in America, but into a common language, right? There are periods where Americans are working a common purpose and there's periods where we are doing less so. And we're in one of those less so periods now. Um, but of course, what's changed as you point out correctly is that the technology is, is um, exists in a way that seems to pull away from uh, common language. Um, so the question is, can we harness that technology in a way to um, do what our ancestors have always done and bring people back together? And it's not yeah. clear whether that can be done. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, Jonathan Rausch, you might be familiar with him, senior scholar of Brookings, who came out with his uh, recent book, The Constitution of Knowledge, Defense of Truth, great book. Um, he talks a lot about what he considers the reality-based institutions. And even though he has his own criticisms of the New York Times and the like, he still says that, look, I mean, 10 to 1, they're still providing some of the reality-based reporting, and we should respect that. They're still they're still committed to the proposition of, of truth in some basic way, even if they've allowed themselves to become woke in certain ways as well. And that, that said, though, um, you know, he's obviously concerned about the, the status of, of reality-based institutions and understands that Twitter and Facebook and all these other social media channels have allowed for sort of, uh, you know, 
groups and others to establish these false narratives and and spread untruth and lies and and the like. Um, but he he's com confident somewhat that 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 we'll get our act together, that we'll create new intermediating institutions that will then um, that will then help us understand uh, reality and and come to a common understanding of what reality is and the like. I have to tell you though that I've I've, I've bounced that off of a lot of other people in sort of the same space who are not nearly as confident, maybe um, precisely for the reason you said, the business model has changed. I mean, there's there's not three or four major institutions now that get to decide what's true and what isn't. There's hundreds and hundreds. How, do, how does that ever come back to the sort of center? How do we ever reestablish the authority of truth when you have just so many different... Um, vehicles for for disseminating lies well you know as a libertarian i would say this is a you know a good reason to uh de-emphasize politics and do more through um uh, uh private social institutions on the theory that you don't get punished in life for having just generally bad political ideas for voting for the wrong candidates for believing in all sorts of nonsense but for example if you believe that uh, vaccines are inserting a microchip in your brain uh, so Bill Gates can control you, you don't get vaccinated and then you die or hospitalized for weeks. That, that has consequences and people do learn from actual consequences to themselves. Uh, but, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not either sanguine that anyone else will take this lesson. I mean, you would thought I, I was hoping that when Donald Trump got elected, uh, a, a prominent I wasn't expecting it to be the dominant reaction on the left. But I thought maybe there'd be a reaction on the left. Geez, we thought the United States was completely going in what in the direction we like. Now it's taking a 180. Maybe yeah. we were wrong in centralizing so much power in the government. Instead, the almost universal reaction was, wow, really bad people have taken power. So we need to retake power and crush them. Right. <laughs> right. But isn't it, in some ways, isn't the sort of the rise of ideology on both political parties in some ways, disrupting the learning process. Um, in other words, they, they make us ir less rational, irrational, even. And 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 political parties that might have, in one point in time, said, "Okay, we didn't do very well last election. Now let's elect somebody who is a more middle of the road or who will uh, help us win." That's all changing now because both parties seem captured by sort of their irrational wings and ideology now has a much more prominent place. Am I wrong about that, that you could be wrong that people actually won't learn about that, won't learn about their lessons from their mistakes? I think I well, I, I think I would, what I was trying to say was that people will learn lessons from mistakes that actually personally cost them. Like you keep gambling on horse races and lose all your money, you may decide that maybe gambling isn't in your best interest over time. Or, or you become you're an addict and you continue to do what you what hurts but, you. But you know the fact is, if you vote, if you you know if if you vote for Trump and bad consequences ensue, or you vote for. Uh, uh, Rashida Slave and bad consequences ensue. The odds that you're gonna, that the consequences will be won't be personal, and you won't really be able to attribute it to your vote because it's one right. of 90 million people. Right. So you basically when you vote, my, you know, I, th I think there's a, you know, not everyone agrees with this, but I don't think people necessarily vote in what in their narrow self-interest. I don't think they even are necessarily all that what we might think of as rational. They vote in a way that makes them feel good. They they uh, they say I you know I and. For, I mean, I don't understand Trump's appeal, even the people who are generally in line with his 
uh, I, you know, his political, his policies, I can see liking his policies, but he's so obviously to me, uh, inept, corrupt and, uh, narcissistic that I just don't get the Trump worship that, uh, some people have, but for whatever reason, he has become the embodiment of a certain worldview, America first and, you know, and so forth that people just have an emotional attachment to, and they overlook all that stuff. Uh, and they will never, and they'll never say, "Oh, well, the bad consequences." They, they don't see the bad consequences are way too indirect to attribute it to their ideology. Unlike, say, you buy a bad peach in the store, you say, "Okay, from now on, I have to look out for brown spots." Right? That's pretty easy. <laughs> well, well, most Trump voters I know are, are are far more practical about it, which is, you know, you know, consider the alternatives. <laughs> So, and that's, that's the people you and I know, but there are clearly lots of other people out well, there who aren't in our social circles. Well, look, there were people who worship Mario, uh, Andrew Cuomo, right? I mean, you know, there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, the point, let's go back to the point you made about, uh, you know, de-emphasizing politics, because, of course, that's, you know, I keep saying historically over and over again, but again, but it's true. Historically speaking, when we get into these periods, we get out of it because of a de-emphasis on politics. Um, and it typically means that there was a religious revival of some sort, um, which then, of course, eventually sets off a political reaction to that religious revival. But that's further down in, this, in, the, in the cycle. Early in the cycle, the religious revival actually brings people together. And I don't mean religion in a, in a you know, particular sense, but in a generalist sense, um, where people decide that the spiritual is more important at this moment um, than the political. What if, what if what if wokeism is wokeism is actually the religion? In other words, like I I, I worry that that what we're seeing or QAnon, yeah. for example, that we're in such a radically different reality now because of social media and so forth. That a lot of the old rules, a lot of the old cyclical nature of our politics and and social learning are now being fundamentally disrupted, and we're seeing new things that may rhyme but are not necessarily indicative of what's to come next. I don't know. It's a, it's a distinct possibility, um, and we won't know until we've lived through it. Exactly. I, I actually think there's an interesting potential demographic revolution going on. I am not a demographer. I haven't studied it, but just from observation of people I know and society, um, I, there seems to be a significant divergence in how many children religious people are having compared yeah. to non-religious people, which I don't, I, again, not a demographer, but I don't think it was as pronounced in the past. And I have, I mean, it's already dramatically affecting the Jewish community. We haven't quite felt it because it's more of the younger generation, but uh, the Pew study that just came out shows that 25% of Jews between 21 and 35 or 39 or something are Orthodox. And that's with Pew using an extremely capacious definition of who they yeah. include as Jews. You could be someone with a, a non-Jewish mother, a, one Jewish grandparent, basically, not halakhically Jewish, you don't practice Judaism, you don't do Jewish holidays, you don't know anything about Judaism. But if you say that I consider myself Jewish in some way and don't have another religion, you're considered Jewish by Pew. So if you actually narrow that field down to Jews who actually are in some way you know, Jewish beyond. Uh, I have fond memories of eating uh, uh, kreplach at my grandmother at my grandmother's house uh, when I was a kid. Uh, you wind up with much more than twenty five percent, and this is going to have dramatic 
I, you know, it's very bad for the Jewish community way if the wokesters win because they hate religion and the Jewish community, which is now seen as a mostly kind of secular, still liberal uh, left wing kind of community is going to be seen as a reactionary community. But I'm wondering, since I could see this so obviously in the Jewish community, to what extent, I mean, I have a lot of Mormon friends in our area. They all have four or five kids. They, they seem yeah. to retain most of them, whether there's going to be a new generation coming up uh, that's going to be much more religious than we're expecting. And that could fundamentally alter the sort of political and social equation in this uh, in this country over time. You never know what's going to actually be the uh, major factor that shifts the the social discourse. I you know maybe you know a lot of individual advocacy as well, and and um, it may be that uh, wokeness is a sort of circular firing squad where eventually um, they become so absurd that they sort of. Uh, you know, obliterate themselves. I don't know. And maybe, as you said, maybe the uh, resurgence of a religion will um, will actually, and, and de these new demographic realities will actually push it aside. Um, so let's just, um, I'm just like to know what you're working on. Um, we'll end there. Um, David E., what are you working on right now? Well, this is uh, both of us, actually. I have, uh, I just, uh, I'm within the next month in uh, five days or so, I am due to send a book manuscript, uh, finalized book manuscript, off to my publisher, which is uh, uh, Bombardier Press, which is David Bern S. Bernstein's uh, press, uh, called um, uh, Classified, the Untold Story of Racial Classifications in America. And you know, the basic idea is that we have these sort of accepted classifications that we all typically use like Asian American, Hispanic, African American, Native American. Uh, they, they, to a large extent, they are arbitrary and don't really make any sense. Like why are Filipinos and Pakistanis in the same category, but Afghans and Pakistanis are not. Afghans are officially white, whereas Pakistanis are Asian because we just drew this arbitrary line, but then they're in the same category of Filipinos, which, you know, are, are different, you know, completely different uh, and Chinese who are also completely different. Uh, so there's that, how did that come about? Uh, how are the categories actually enforced? Uh, how, um, uh, you know, um, what, why did some groups get included and some groups get ex excluded? Indian people from South Asia were white for a while and they lobbied and became Asian. Uh, the Ita Italian groups lobbied to become non-white, but they lost, but they never quite made it. They almost got recognized by the government. So it's all, it's a lot, of, it's a lot of really, I mean, it's a great thing about being a law professor. This is to be extremely interesting anyway, stuff I like to read about. So I get to spend my time doing that and writing about it. The writing part's actually much harder than the, than the reading, admittedly. But uh, there's even a little section about what, about Jews and how Jews have been classified. You probably don't know this, but Hasidic Jews uh, are actually classified as a non-white minority group, essentially, uh, in many Department of Housing and Urban Development uh, programs. Get on that. <laughs> right. Wow. Interesting. Well, I'm going to obviously have to bring you back on this podcast to discuss your new book. So um, so let's let's uh, I'll look forward to hearing how that goes. And if um, and if you're behind on it, I'll ask David S. what's going on with it. And uh, no, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll dark on him. Absolutely. <laughs> um, how about you, David S.? Oh, so I mean, aside from this is an incredibly um, fertile time for publishing. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things we're, we're doing right now, and actually the New York Times of all places gave us some coverage of it last weekend. Um, I heard about that. 
Yeah, yeah. We started a uh, sub-imprint called Emancipation Books um, that deals with uh, all of these issues that we've discussed today, racial issues, issues around ethnicity, um, in a very heterodox way. Um, and it's, you know, started off as, you know, largely politically conservative and, and libertarian. Uh, but what the thing that's really interesting is that the mainstream publishing's view of these issues has, is so narrow that we're able to actually pick up things that are left of center, but they're still too heterodox even for mainstream publishing. For example, we uh, just announced we we're doing a book uh, by a woman named Angela Harrelson who's uh, George Floyd's aunt. Um, and it's all about, uh, you know, the, the meaning behind her, her nephew's murder. Um, and uh, it, it woven in with her family story and how, you know, he was, you know, a troubled youth, like so many troubled youth in America, and how um, race uh, determines um what happens to a troubled young man um and it's a really fascinating take on the whole thing um but you know it, it's not left not right it's it's just her own perspective but it was not something that mainstream publishers felt like they could touch why because she's a devout christian and she talks about uh you know how she views, you know, faith as key to overcoming these these divisions in America. Not something that Random House or Simon Schuster has any interest in. Um, so, in a way, is it is it sort? Of, are you in a way? sort of a derivative of the same phenomena that uh, is producing all these substacks. Um, you know, Andrew Sullivan leaves, what is it, the New Yorker, yeah. and Glenn Greenwald leaves, I forgot uh, what, and uh, they're all uh, Intercept, right? Yeah. And Barry Weiss leaves the New York Times, and all of a sudden, they're the people being read. I, I don't know what's going to happen to Vox now that Matthew Iglesias is gone and all these other places, because they're the most interesting writers that these, these um, publications have, and they're writing great stuff and people are even willing to pay for it. They're all making like tons of money too. And yeah. that happen, there must be a, you know, um, a book, um, it, that, that must be the same phenomenon that's happening with books as well. When you're willing to publish those people that, that the, these other publishers aren't, you're, you're benefiting from the best writing, um, out there as well. Yeah. Yeah. The best writing and also just, you know, the perspectives that, that people want to hear. Um, the, the mainstream publishers are so, um, they're so deep in a bubble. They're so deep in an in a East Coast urban bubble um, that anything that uh, doesn't, you know, fit within that, they can't see why anybody would buy it. And it's, it, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Even if you go to small town America, right? You go to the local bookstores in small town America, they all look like a bookstore from East Village in Manhattan, right? They don't, they don't stock things that average Americans. Yeah, yeah. They just right. are literally um, catering to 10% of their potential audience. 
Right. Um, well, you had you have Abigail Schreier's book, for example, that um, you know on on trans rights and so forth. That was, I think, banned from Target for a period. Yeah. I think it might still be. It came back and it's was still banned, banned on Amazon. Amazon. Is it banned on Amazon? Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I think it was published by a sort of a religious-based pub publisher because I don't think Random House would publish it. I know that Random House had that whole uh, blow up about Jordan Peterson's book where its own staff rebelled against it. I think it was Random House, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was uh, Random House Canada, I believe. Right, yeah. right. Let me ask you a question. Isn't some of this really about... about their own internal dynamics. I mean, you saw this with the New York Times when uh, Don McNeil, the great science reporter, got sort of um, canceled by uh, 150 reporters or and other staffers at the Times because of the of, of what he said or purportedly said. Um, and um, and yet um, and and you see, see this in Random House Canada with Jordan Peterson. Is it that is it not just that they don't understand what the market is, but but they're scared of their own staffers that they've hired over time uh that's a that's a huge problem i mean and it's something we face we we're distributed through simon and schuster um and we've had a couple of books that we want to distribute either canceled or threatened to be canceled um because they're just they are that you know they they have to have a town hall meeting every time they agree to distribute one of our books that that uh, offends their staff members um it's it's literally insane, um, and but it, what it forces you to do as a, as an independent publisher is to think about you know what your options are, um, and you do a lot of strategizing around getting out of the mainstream ecosystem, right? Where if a book, for example, if a book that we uh, publish, Amazon decides to ban it, where are we going to sell it? Well, we have to build our own store. Um, if Simon Schuster won't distribute it, well, we have to find our own distribution channels, all of this stuff. Um, and it's, it's a huge business opportunity, but it's also a huge pain in the ass, frankly. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not as famous as the other author, authors you mentioned, but I've written, uh, this is my, I think my fifth solo author book. I haven't had no trouble finding publishers before. I'm thrilled to be publishing with Bombardier, but I, 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 my original conception was as an academic university press book. And my, I have an agent. I have past publications. I sent it out to all the major university presses that publish law books. And not only, it's not that the books got re even rejected as such, not a single press would send it out for review. Not Harvard <laughs> University Press had published a book on a, sim, on a single on a similar theme, but more historical. And I talked to the editor for an hour. He was really enthusiastic. He obviously wanted to go forward, but he can't, you know, got back to me and said, uh, you know, we can't go forward. And I assume the board of editors just vetoed it. And the book is not, uh, even in its current um, trade press form, as opposed to that, it's not a especially polemical book. It's mostly quite positive, yeah, positive in the philosophical sense of just explaining what happened and why. It's a fascinating uh, narrative is what it is. Yeah. And, That's why and, it appealed to me, because it's an incredible story. And, and, and you know, this is, we're not talking about like a Simon and Schuster or basic books. For University Press, a book that sells you know two thousand copies is a big seller. I have no <laughs> doubt it'll do that, right? So it's not like they think it was a market, but you couldn't even get past. Actually, my favorite is NYU Press, which you know allegedly specializes in like race books and whatever, but always 
left wing. Uh, my agent sent it to them at like 5.01 and at like 5.15 they sent a rejection email. So the, uh, the editor, even, <laughs> which meant that the meant that their editor didn't even bother reading the proposal. Right. Well, maybe this is how illiberalism fails in that it, uh, it that the institutions that distribute books and ideas and so forth become so stale themselves that no one actually pays attention to them and that we actually end up rewarding the uh, institutions that are willing to take chances and that liberalism just finds other outlets to express itself. So th this is the flip side of what I said earlier about all the different outlets you have. So on the one hand, it lets uh, the wackos get around the old gatekeeping uh, problems. On the other hand, to the extent it's the mainstream right. that are being the gatekeepers and keeping out uh, good ideas or at least innovative ideas that should get a hearing, at least there, there are going to be other uh, opportunities out there to get those ideas out. Fascinating. Well, this has been a great conversation, as I expected it would. And uh, maybe we'll do this every once in a while, as we talked about doing on Clubhouse. But I, I think this is a great way to doing it on a, on a, a podcast and YouTube. And um, I appreciate your time and your uh, great conversation. Yeah.